Section 8 of The Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section 8. When I turned the next foreland, I all at once began to see a number of craft, which increased as I advanced, most of them small boats with some schooners sloops and larger craft the majority aground and suddenly now i was conscious that mingling with that delicious odour of spring blossoms profoundly modifying yet not destroying it was another odour wafting to me on the wings of the very faint land breeze and man i said is decomposing for i knew it well it was the odour of human corruption the fjord opened finally in a somewhat wider basin shut in by quite steep, high-towering mountains, which reflected themselves in the water to their last cloudy crag, and at the end of this I saw ships, a quay, and a modest, homely old town. Not a sound, not one, only the languidly working engines of the Boreal. Here, it was clear, the angel of silence had passed, and his scythe moan. I ran and stopped the engines, and without anchoring got down into an empty boat that lay at the ship's side when she stopped and I paddled twenty yards toward the little quay. There is a brigantine, with all her courses set, three jibs, staysails, square sails, main and foresails, and gaff topsail, looking hanging and listless in that calm place, and wedded to a still canopy of herself, massed downward in the water. There were three lumber schooners, a forty-ton steamboat, a tiny bark, five Norway herring fishers, and ten or twelve shallops, and the sailing craft had all fore and aft sails set, and about each, as I passed among them, brooded an odour that was both sweet and abhorrent, an odour more suggestive of the very genius of mortality, the inner mind and meaning of Azrael, than aught that I could have conceived, for all, as I soon saw, were crowded with dead. Well, I went up the old mossed steps, in that strange dazed state in which one notices frivolous things, I remember, for instance, feeling the lightness of my new clothes, for the weather was quite mild, and the day before I had changed to summer things, for having on now only a common undyed woolen shirt, the sleeves rolled up, and cord trousers with a belt, and a cloth cap over my long hair, and an old pair of yellow shoes without laces and without socks. And I stood on the unhewn stones of the edge of the quay, and looked abroad over a largish piece of unpaved ground, which lay between the first house-row and the quay. What I saw was not only most woeful, but wildly startling. Woeful, because a great crowd of people had assembled, and lay dead there, and wildly startling, because something in their tout ensemble told me in one minute why they were there in such number. They were there in the hope, and with the thought, to fly westward by boat. And the something which told me, this was a certain foreign air about that field of the dead, as the eye rested on it, something unnorthern, southern, and oriental. Two yards from my feet, as I stepped to the top, lay a group of three, one a Norway peasant girl in skirt of olive green, scarlet stomacher, embroidered bodice, scotch bonnet trimmed with silver lace, and big silver shoe buckles. The second was an old Norway man in knee breeches, and eighteenth-century small clothes, and worsted cap, and the third was, I decided, an old Jew of the Polish pale, in gabardine and skull-cap, with ear-locks. I went nearer to where they lay, thick as reaped stubble between the quay and a little stone fountain in the middle of the space, 
and I saw among those northern dead two dark-skinned women in costly dress, either Spanish or Italian, and the yellower mortality of a Mongolian, probably a Magyar, and a big negro in zouave dress, and some twenty-five obvious French, and two Morocco fezes, and the green turban of a Sharif, and the white of an ulema. And I asked myself this question. How came these foreign stragglers here in this obscure northern town? And my wild heart answered, There has been an impassioned stampede, northward and westward, of all the tribes of man. And this that I, Adam Jeffson, here see, is but the far-tossed spray of that monstrous, infuriate flood. Well, I passed up a street before me, careful, careful where I trod. It was not utterly silent, nor was the key square, but haunted by a dense cloud of mosquitoes, and dreamy twinges of music, like the drawing of the violin bow in Elfland. The street was narrow, paved, steep, and dark, and the sensations with which I, poor bent man, passed through that dead town, only Atlas, fabled to bear the burden of this earth, could divine. I thought to myself, if now a wave from the deep has washed over this planetary ship of earth, and I, who alone happen to be in the, to be in the extreme bows, am the sole survivor of that crew, what then, my God, shall I do? I felt, I felt that in this townlet, save the water gnats of Norway, was no living thing, that the hum and the savor of eternity filled and wrapped and embalmed it. The houses are mostly of wood, some of them fairly large, with a porte-cochere leading into a semicircular yard around which the building stands, very steep-roofed and shingled in view of the heavy snow-masses of winter. Glancing into one open casement near the ground, I saw an aged woman, stout and capped, lie on her face before a very large porcelain stove. But I paced on without stoppage, traversed several streets, and came out as it became dark, upon a piece of grassland leading downward to a mountain gorge. It was some distance along this gorge that I found myself sitting the next morning, and how and in what trance I passed that whole blank night is obliterated from my consciousness. When I looked about with the return of light, I saw majestic, fur-grown mountains on either hand, almost meeting overhead at some points, deeply shading the mossy gorge. I rose, and careless of direction, went still onward and walked and walked for hours, unconscious of hunger. There was a profusion of wild mountain strawberries, very tiny, which must grow almost into winter, a few of which I ate. There were blue lilies of the valley, and luxuriance of verdure, and a noise of waters. Occasionally I saw little cataracts on high, fluttering like white, wild rags, for they broke in the mid-fall, and were caught away, and scattered. Patches also, of reaped hay and barley hung up in a singular way on stakes six feet high, I suppose to dry. There were perched huts and a seemingly inaccessible small castle or burg, but none of these did I enter, and five bodies only I saw in the gorge, a woman with a babe and a man with two small oxen. About three in the afternoon I was startled to find myself there and turned back. It was dark when I again passed through those gloomy streets of Adheim, making for the quay, and now I felt both my hunger and a drooping weariness. I had no thought of entering any house, but as I passed by one open porte-cochet, something, I know not what, made me turn sharply in, for my mind had become as fluff on the winds, not working of its own action, but the sport of impulses that seemed external. 
I went across the yard and ascended a wooden spiral stair by a twilight which just enabled me to pick my way among five or six vague forms fallen there. In that confined place fantastic qualms beset me. I mounted to the first landing and tried the door, but it was locked. I mounted to the second. The door was open, and with a chill reluctance I took a step inward, where all was pitch darkness, the window stores being drawn. I hesitated. It was very dark. I tried to utter that word of mine, but it came in a whisper inaudible to my ears. I tried again, and this time heard myself say, Anyone? At the same time I had made another step forward, and trodden upon a soft abdomen, and at that contact terrors the most cold and ghastly thrilled me through and through, for it was as though I saw in that darkness the sudden eyeballs of hell and frenzy glare upon me, and with a low gurgle of affright I was gone, helter-skelter down the stairs, treading upon flesh, across the yard and down the street, with pelting feet and open arms and sobbing bosom, for I thought that all Adheim was after me, nor was my horrid haste appeased till I was on board the Boreal and moving down the fjord. Out to sea, then, I went again, and within the next few days I visited Bergen and put in at Stavanger, and I saw that Bergen and Stavanger were dead. It was then, on the 19th of August, that I turned my bow toward my native land. From Stavanger I steered a straight course for the Hummer. I had no sooner left behind me the Norway coast than I began to meet the ships, the ships, ship after ship, and by the time I entered the zone of the ordinary alternation of sunny day and sunless night, I was moving through the midst of an incredible number of craft, a mighty and widespread fleet. Over all that great expanse of the North Sea, where, in its most populous days of trade, the sailor might perhaps sight a sail or two, I had now at every moment at least ten or twelve within scope of the glass, oftentimes as many as forty, forty-five, and very still they lay on a still sea, itself a dead thing livid as the lips of death, and there was an intensity in the calm that was appalling, for the ocean seemed weighted, and the air drugged. Extremely slow was my advance, for at first I would not leave any ship, however remotely small, without approaching sufficiently to investigate her, at least with a spyglass, and a strange multitudinous mixture of species they were. Trawlers in hosts, warships of every nation, used, it seemed, as passenger boats, smacks, feluccas, liners, steam barges, great foremasters with sails, channel boats, luggers, a Venetian boat, colliers, yachts, training ships, dredgers, two boats with curving gaffs, Marseille fishers, a Maltese Sparinaire, American offshore sail, Mississippi steamboats, Sorrento lug schooners, Rhine punts, yawls, old frigates and three-deckers, called to novel use, Yarmouth tubs, Rotterdam flat-bottoms, floats, more gunwale drafts, anything from anywhere that could bear a human freight on water had come, and was here. And all, I knew, had been making westward, or northward, or both, and all, I knew, were crowded, and all were tombs, listlessly wandering, my God, on the wandering sea, with their dead. And so fair was the world about them, too, the brightest, suavest autumn weather, all the still air aromatic with that vernal perfume of peach, yet not so utterly still, but if I pass close to the lee of any floating thing, the spicy stirrings of morning or evening wafted me faint puffs of the odor of mortality overripe for the grave. So abominable and accursed did this become to me, such a plague and a hissing, vague as was the offense, 
that I began to shun rather than seek the ships, and also I now dropped my twelve, whom I had kept to be my companions all the way from the far north, one by one into the sea, for now I had definitely passed into a zone of settled warmth. I was convinced, however, that the poison, whatever it might be, had some embalming or antiseptic effect upon the bodies. At Adheim, Bergen, and Stavanger, for instance, where the air temperature permitted me to go without a jacket, only the merest hints and whiffs of the processes of dissolution had troubled me. Very benign, I say, and pleasant to see, was sky and sea during all that voyage. But it was at sunset that my sense of the wondrously beautiful was roused and excited, in spite of that great burden which I carried. Certainly I never saw sunsets resembling those, nor could have conceived of aught so flamboyant, extravagant and bewitched, for the whole heaven seemed turned into a, an arena for warring hierarchies, warring for the universe, or it was like the wild countenance of God defeated, and flying, marred and bloody from his enemies. But many evenings I watched with unintelligent awe, believing it but a portend of the unsheathed sword of the Almighty, till one morning a thought pricked me like a sword for I suddenly remembered the great sunsets of the later nineteenth century witnessed in Europe, America, and I believed all over the world, after the eruption of the volcano at Krakatoa. And whereas I had before said to myself, If now a wave from the deep has washed over this planetary ship of earth, I said now, A wave, but not from the deep, a wave, rather, which she had reserved and has spouted from her own unmotherly entrails. I had some knowledge of Morse telegraphy, and of the manipulation of tape machines, telegraphic typing machines, and the ordinary wireless transmitter and coherer, as of most little things of that sort which came within the outskirts of the interest of a man of science. I had collaborated with Professor Stanistreet in the production of a textbook called Applications of Science to the Arts, which had brought us some notoriety, and on the whole the minutiae of modern things were still pretty fresh in my memory. I could therefore have wired from Bergen or Stavanger, supposing the batteries not run down, to somewhere, but I would not. I was so afraid, afraid lest forever from nowhere should come one answering click, or flash, or stirring. I could have made short work and landed at Hull, but I would not, I was so afraid, for I was used to the silence of the ice, and I was used to the silence of the sea, but I was afraid of the silence of England. End of section 8. Recording by Graham Macmillan, San Diego, California.